You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So as I was preparing for our time here this morning in the Word, I was reminded of something that happened many, many years ago. But I remember back to this season of life when Jamie and I had a, a young family. We had a, a, a little toddler and our, our newest addition, our son, had just arrived. So we had two little kids. I had just transitioned from being a middle school pastor at my church to the community care pastor, which is a completely different rhythm of life. And um, we were a young family struggling to make ends meet. And so this opportunity came up for us to also take on uh, this part-time paper route, which we did. And so initially, Jamie took that on. And then when our, when our son did come along, then that transitioned to me. And, you know, it, it just kind of fit with the rhythm and flow of our life. I mean, we had a newborn. We weren't sleeping anyway. So it was no big deal to just, you know, get up at 435, do this paper route, and then go on to work. Sleep's overrated anyway, right? So... We're in this season of doing this paper out, and now we're really reaching back into the archives. We didn't have cell phones then, and I know that's really hard to imagine a world without cell phones, but we didn't have cell phones. They weren't invented then. So sometime after the telegraph and sometime before the cell phone, we had this thing called pagers, and a pager was this little guy that you had, this digital thing, and the early pagers were just numbers. So it would buzz or it would chirp, and then you'd look down at it. And I know some of you have no frame of reference for this, and that's okay, probably many of you. But there would be this number, and so you needed to call the number, and that's how people initially stayed in touch with one another. But then you graduated to these alphanumeric pagers where you could actually begin to send messages. And so in this season of life, our church had just purchased alphanumeric pagers for us, and I had this alphanumeric pager. So as I'm out delivering these papers early in the morning, I get this message that comes through that says, call the church office now. And I never got messages like that, and I thought, am I in trouble? What, what, what's going on? Is there trouble? And so I found a 7-Eleven payphone, again, sometime after the telegraph, sometime before the pager. We had telef- pay t- uh, telephones. Paid to, uh, what am I trying to say? Pay yeah, that. Payphones. So stopped, and I put in my quarter, and I called the church office, and I'm told, you need to get back to the church right away. Whatever you're doing, stop, come back. And I said, what happened? And what had happened was this. Do you remember where you were at and what you were doing on 9-11 in 2001? Now, again, there are a number of you who you weren't even alive when this happened, and that's okay. But for those of us who were, whatever age we were, do you remember what you were doing? I remember this with clarity because this was a defining moment for our country. It wasn't just that it was a tragedy and a a crisis or even an act of terrorism. This forever changed our mentality as a country. Because really, for a number of us, for the first time we realized this is really happening here. It, it, It could happen to me. I could be on a plane that could go into a building, changed forever, 
even how we travel. But it was a defining moment for our, for our country, and for many of us, we no longer felt safe because this had happened. In this passage today, Jeremiah, as he necessarily continues to call the people back to God and really does speak a necessary message and warning of judgment once again, is going to reach back into their history, into this defining moment that happened for them. Because you see, no matter what age you are, it seems like in every generation, if we were to go back through the decades or even probably the decades that are going to come, we could put our finger on, okay, I remember that. That was a defining moment for our generation or for our country. And what he's going to call them back to and remind them of in this message was true for them. And you'll see it in the passage we're about to read. And he's trying to shock them into listening to his warnings and to returning to a right relationship with God. But he's going to talk to them about a place called Shiloh. And Shiloh was literally the center of the country. It was about 20 miles north of Jerusalem when Joshua led the people into the promised land after all those years of desert wandering, after all those years of captivity and slavery in Egypt. This is where they came to. And it was there that they divided up the land. This was the home of the tabernacle. This was where the Ark of the Covenant was. For a number of years, this is where the great prophet Samuel counseled from. And the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle lived here, was here, in the time of the judges. But because the people would not obey God, because they would not return to him in right relationship with him, God had Shiloh destroyed. The Philistines came through in 1050 BC, history informs us. And just like God had predicted then, Shiloh was completely wiped out. And so pretty much everybody had seen Shiloh at some point. Because if you're traveling from the Galilee area up to Jerusalem, you would pass by Shiloh. And what you would see were a bunch of rocks and a few weeds here and there, and that's about it. And so it was a defining point in Israel's history. And he's going to remind them of this as he warns them. And why such strong words? Why would he reach back to their 9-11 event and say, this could happen to you because of the religious hypocrisy that was going on in their lives and in the nation. So let me read this passage to you. This is our passage for today. Jeremiah 7, 1 through 15. And this again is from Jeremiah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord. All you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. 
safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. Wow. What a sobering message. And as we think about just how this starts, it's, it's really startling and it's really shocking. I want you to imagine for those of you who are able to come to in-person worship on a Sunday morning, that next Sunday when you come back, as you're walking up to the facility here, here I am standing out there with this, with this poster board that says, judgment is coming, the end is nigh. And I'm preaching and yelling and proclaiming this message of warning and judgment. Be pretty hard to miss, right? And that's exactly the picture of what's going on here. Here's Jeremiah standing outside the temple where everyone was gonna come, even in all the pagan, idolatry, awful stuff that was going on when the temple was being misused and defiled, people still came there. Everybody came there. It was the epicenter of the community. So everyone was going to hear this message. And you have to understand some history here to appreciate why Jeremiah is giving this message and why it's being proclaimed in this way. And I thought the best way, the most descriptive way to, uh, to explain this was to give you some quotes out of one of the commentaries that the preaching team and I are using. This is by Eugene Peterson. It's called Run With the Horses, and it gives us some history here. Manasseh was the worst king the Hebrews ever had, and understand that Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry, started proclaiming these messages about the last 10 years of Manasseh's reign. He was a thoroughly bad man presiding over a totally corrupt government. He reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years, and it was a dark and evil half century. He encouraged a pagan worship that involved whole communities and sexual orgies. He installed cult prostitutes at shrines throughout the countryside. He imported wizards and sorcerers who enslaved the people in superstitions and manipulated them with their magic. The man could not do enough evil. There seemed to be no end to his barbarous cruelties. His capacity for inventing new forms of evil seemed bottomless. His appetite for the sordid was insatiable. And one day, he placed his son on the altar in some black and terrible ritual of witchcraft, and he burned him as an offering. And when he died, his oldest son then succeeded him as king, Anon, or Amon rather, Amon, and he was so evil that the people actually murdered him. And so now, his son, who was only eight years old at the time, Josiah, became the king. And shortly after that happened, as we talked about last week, the book of the law was found after being lost all these years, for years and years and years. And many scholars think it was the book of Deuteronomy. And so it was read to the people, and then this is what happened. 
The young king's response was swift and commanding. He immediately put into action everything he had read. And now that he knew what true worship was, he banished banished every vestige of false worship. The cult prostitutes who had special housing in the temple were turned away. The magicians and sorcerers who had set up shop in the temple precincts were scattered. Old altars were torn down and the people were taught the way of faith. But what really changed? Oh, in a sense, the people jumped through the hoops, checked the boxes, were still coming to the temple. But from the message we just heard from Jeremiah, not much had really changed. Murder was still rampant, literally. They're lying to one another. They're still committing adultery. They're still worshiping false gods. How did they get to this place? And what relevancy, can we just ask it, what relevancy does this have for your life and mine? And to me, this is the reality of why we need to listen carefully to this and not dismiss it as, boy, I hope that other person is listening to this who needs to hear this. Because think with me for a moment. Does anyone ever truly aspire to set out to be a religious hypocrite? And think about that with me for a moment. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a teacher. I want to be this or that. I want to be a religious hypocrite. That's what I aspire to. Of course not. No one. No one would say they aspire to that. But how did they get there? How did an entire nation get to this place? And that's what's sobering to me is that the reality is this could happen to anyone. This could happen to any one of us, which is why we need to listen to it and why Jeremiah said right out of the gate in the opening verse, hear the word of the Lord. And let's do business with that for a minute. What what does that really mean? I mean, isn't that pretty self-evident? But any of us in any kind of a relationship No, if we think a little critically about this and a little wisely about it, there's a big difference between hearing and listening, right? This is true for marriages. It's true for families. It's true for friendships. You could cognitively hear something and not get it, right? Case in point, this is family folklore for my family and me. I can be remarkably clueless. And sometimes I can hear things and not listen. And many years ago, we used to take these annual trips to Newport and go to the coast as a family. It was rich and it was fun. And my family told me shortly after we got there, hey, you know what? Tomorrow we're going to celebrate the fact that you've been a pastor. You've been in vocational ministry for 20 years. So we're going we're to celebrate that. So I get up that next morning and here is this big blue poster that's on the window. And you may not be able to read that, but it says, congratulations, dad, 20 years in ministry. And Jamie was behind the camera here. This was a picture of me and the kiddos some 11 years ago. I know I still look the same. Bless you. Still look young. And there's this sign on the window. And if that's not enough, they put a sign on the dog. (laughs) This was our our little dog and her name was Emma. And they have this 20 year sign. Okay. Now here comes the story. So I get up that morning and I kind of stumble my way to the coffee and, you know, 
have to have some coffee. I'm drinking coffee. I walk right by this huge sign that's on the window, and the dog is running around with this sign on it, and I don't see it for like 20 minutes. I just completely oblivious. And finally, my family can't stand it any longer. They're waiting for me to notice, and I don't. And finally, they basically say, Dad, look at the window. Oh, I'll be darned. Look at that. When did that get there? It's been there the whole morning. Oh, look at the dog. Oh, oh, oops. Completely clueless, right? And I can be like that. But this isn't about that. This isn't about them being clueless. In fact, this is about them choosing not to listen. This is what we would call in many relationships selective hearing. And they are choosing not to hear and not to respond. In fact, it says here that the Lord has come to them through Jeremiah and other prophets. We looked at this last week. Through decades and decades and decades of warning. And they're choosing not to listen. They don't get it because they don't want to get it. Which begs the question of you and me. Are you listening and hearing the word? Are you hearing the word of God? Oh yeah, I hear the word. Yeah, I'm I'm listening to the word. I'm here, aren't I? And yes, it's wonderful that you're here. But is that translating into action in your life? Are you actually doing it, living it out? You know, in the book of James, in the New Testament, pretty straightforward. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Because belief, especially when belief is talked about in God's word, it is always, always married to action. It always assumes action. It always assumes you're not just selectively listening to it. And maybe you're getting the information. It means you're actually living it out. So so are you? Because the people weren't. And that's why Jeremiah necessarily says this to them. Reform your ways and actions. Which really means transform your ways and actions. You know, one of the things our communities at Grace have been doing, and I so appreciate this, is they are talking through the very spiritual practices and realities that relate to what we're talking about here on Sunday mornings. They've been talking a lot about repentance, and necessarily so. Because this isn't just about changing behavior. This is about changing the core of of who you are. And we'll talk about what that looks like in just a bit, but this is about a transformation that he's calling them to. This isn't behavior modification. This is about changing the core of who they are. And yes, it really is possible. But it means that we stop going through the religious motions, which is what they were doing. On the outside in, in many ways, they were doing what they needed to do. It's Analogous to the person who goes to church, they serve, they're engaged, they give, they show up on Sundays or they're online taking it in on Sundays. But the way they live the rest of their life, the rest of the week, you'd never know that they claim the name of Jesus as, as their Lord and Savior. And so to illustrate his point, 
he refers to the false prophets of the day, and there were many who were saying, hey, everything's great. We have the temple of God. And this is like someone walking into the temple proverbially and saying, oh, I'm in the temple, or oh, I'm going to church, or oh, this is, this is so great. But they're not really being sincere. The changes aren't enduring or lasting. You know, this is like a bride who is really excited about her wedding. And brides should be excited about their wedding, about the ceremony. It's so, so special, so, so sweet, so significant. But what about the marriage then that's going to follow? And you know, in our culture, by way of example, we put so much emphasis on, on weddings and, and making them special and beautiful, and they absolutely should be all those things. But what about what follows the wedding? What about the relationship that comes afterwards? And you know, we'll have folks approach us and ask us to perform weddings as, as um, leadership, and we love to do that, but that will always be connected to investment and hopefully even more investment into the relationship besides just pulling off this great ceremony. And so what God's bride is doing is she is saying, look how beautiful I am. Look at, look at, look at this temple. And yet she's not willing to do the work of working on the relationship, which I think is instructive for you and me. What does it mean to stop going through the religious motions? It always comes down to relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with others. So let's go there for a minute. Just one dynamic of our relationship with God. Are you hearing the word? Not just taking it in, but letting it transform you, believing it, responding to it, living it, living it out. Well, let's go a little deeper there. What kind of media are you consuming? What voices are you listening to? What are you watching on social? You know, when you get into those threads or you just, you get into those, those videos, one after another on YouTube or whatever you're doing on Facebook, whatever your social media preference, how much of that are you taking in versus the word of God? Or here's one for you, and this, this is a battleground and a place of growth for me, but like many of you, I sleep with my cell phone near my bed. I, I want to be accessible to family and um, if I do need to be reached. And for the most part, my phone stays quiet, but I've prioritized some, you know, numbers that can get through to me. And so I wake up every morning, and usually my cell phone is my alarm, and I'll grab it, and the first thing I'm tempted to do is to see, okay, do I have any texts? And then I begin to answer those. And do I have any emails? And I always have a ton of those, but I quickly scan those to make sure there isn't something that I immediately need to steer into. And I use my phone for all these other things except the word. And many times I'll be so busy checking out all this other stuff, I never quite get around to the word. And I study the Word of God on my phone and, and in my hardcover Bible, but there are times I don't ever come back to it. And something I'm deliberately trying to change is the first thing I look at when I wake up is the Word and not my texts and not my emails and not the other things that are demanding my time. And for me, 
this is something the Lord has impressed on, on me, that this is something that needs to change, and it's tough. But what about you? Is this the only time you are taking in the word of God? Now, this is a great starting place, but you have to be hearing the word of God for yourself. You have to be listening to the word of God somehow, some way, and there are more ways to have access to the word of God in this day and age than ever. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But are you? Are you hearing the word of God? But let's talk about relationship with others. Are you living out the word of God? You know, I'm a big believer. I've said it to many of you individually. If you can live the gospel out in your own family, you can do it anywhere. I mean, you really can. If you can live the gospel out in your marriage, in your familial relationships, then you can live it out anywhere. So, are you loving the people in your life who don't deserve it? There's a question for you. Let's take it a step further. How about people who aren't in your tribe? Who you don't necessarily have much of a relationship with? Are, are you loving them? Because do you see where Jeremiah takes this and what he reminds the people of? He says, if you want to avoid being a hypocrite, then practice righteousness. And it does take practice. Because the Lord expects us to live out righteousness with everybody, not just the people in our immediate circle, but everybody around us. Well, what is righteousness? Well, we very much make, need to make sure we're on the same page with that. So in our culture, righteousness is often defined or thought of as this. You know, that's someone who's a good person, or at least a decent person, who follows the rules. They, they dispense justice where needed, and in particular, they give the bad guys their due. Those are all dimensions of cultural righteousness. But this is what biblical righteousness is about. All relationships, God, self, others, land full of joy, shalom, shalom meaning the way God intended things to be, ordered, flourishing, harmonious. And at the heart of that is this reality that what that practically looks like is that biblical righteousness, here we go, is being willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of the quote-unquote worthless person. Wow. That's a pretty high bar. And in that day and age, the, the overlooked, the forgotten, the not valued person was the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. And so to live out biblical righteousness was to love them and serve them and take care of them and put yourself out there for them. Really? That is, that is so unrealistic. I mean, who, who lives like that? I mean, really? God's people do. Look what he calls them to. If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. And he goes on to, again, describe what genuine change looks like, what it genuinely means to love God and love others. But this was top 
of the list, and you see this over and over again in, in God's word. And so as you and I think this out in our lives and in our relationships, who is the person who gets overlooked by everybody else? Who is that person who you don't necessarily have a relationship with, but God calls you to love them? And again, this is a really big ask if you and I begin to think about this and carry it through to conclusion. You're asking me to love and serve and really to disadvantage myself in order to help someone who maybe I have no relationship with, who no one else is helping, and who I really don't have any expectation of getting anything from. Not a thank you, not gratitude, not acknowledgement, not recognition. And I'm still supposed to help them? I'm still supposed to love them? This is a big ask. I mean, how does this, how does this really work? What does it really look like? Is this even possible? And the reality is, it is possible. Because if you know Jesus Christ, if you've received him into your life, then he lives in you through the power of his Holy Spirit. And there's this fusion that happens between his power and our willingness to respond and to actually work at it. And this, this balance is captured in places like 2 Peter in the New Testament. His divine power, it's talking about the Holy Spirit, God's presence in our lives, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. But look what he goes on to say just a couple verses later. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. And then he continues to go down this list of spiritual realities. But the bottom line is, if we take our effort in response to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit you and I truly can live like this. Because the reality is, if you know Jesus Christ, your deepest desire is to trust him and obey him and be loyal to him. Not necessarily your strongest desire in the moment, because oftentimes we're doing battle with desires in the moment that aren't godly. But your deepest desire really is to trust and obey and love him and listen to him and respond to him and in turn, live out the very biblical righteousness that's being talked about here. And the reason I believe this so strongly is because I see you doing it. We as a church family do this. Who are those in our culture who are forgotten, overlooked, oftentimes unloved, who everyone else seems to walk by, who when it serves our culture, our culture will acknowledge and recognize them, but then they move on. And, and at the end of the day, not a lot of people really interested in helping. We corporately are engaged in a number of ways in trying to love everybody, not just the people who will benefit us or who will get recognized for. Um, we partner with my father's house, and I so deeply believe in this ministry but we're one of many churches that, that partner with them. We have resources in our mission, vision, giving that go monthly to my father's house. So you're a part of this. If you give to the mission and vision, they literally take families that are homeless, give them a place to live, get them off the street, teach them life skills, grow them, invest in them, and yes, share Jesus with them. And they have a quote-unquote success rate of engagement once these families leave the resources of my father's house, go out in the community, 
hold jobs, have a stable home, are able to invest back into the community themselves, they have a success rate of like 75 to 80%. That is light years ahead of any government subsidized entity. Light years more effective because they're introducing people to the hope and the transformation that we're talking about here in Jesus Christ. We partner with them. We partner with area churches to host Foster Night Out. Again, reaching into the lives of, of foster kids and their families and loving them in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that well over half of the families who are foster parents in Multnomah County are Jesus followers. Isn't that the way it should be? Immigrant connection. We have recently partnered with this and we really have gotten in on the ground floor of helping be a part of this partnership years ago. But for someone who isn't documented to get documented, to get their green card or permanent residency or what have you, all the other dimensions in between is incredibly expensive, profoundly complicated, extremely backed up and backlogged, and you can spend tens of thousands of dollars and still not get what you're looking for. Immigrant Connection is sponsored by our government, trained legal counsel, that for a fraction of the cost actually help people who want to get documented, who want to get permanent residency, what have you, actually help them do that, and they do it in the name of Jesus Christ and we partner with them too. The reason I am adamant that we can live out biblical righteousness is that we're trying our best as a church family, and we're doing it. And you can too. When is the last time you have put yourself out there for someone who probably won't thank you, who you won't get recognition for, who may not even appreciate it at all, but it honors God. When is the last time you've loved someone in that way? You can. You really can. As hard as that sounds. Because that's the way God has loved you. Do any of us deserve the grace of God? No. God owes us nothing. And yet, he loves us when we're undeserving. And so because he's loved us that way, we can love other people that way too. So as our worship team comes, and as we think about this reality, I want to remind myself and remind you once again of the gospel. Why do we live like this? Why do we live this distinctively? Why do we love people who won't benefit us, who maybe even won't thank us, who we won't get recognized for? Because that is the way God loves us. He gives his grace to us through Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus, if you've received him into your life, you can live this way. And my friends, more than ever, we need a community of Jesus followers who will love people like this because no one else will. This is our side of the street and we can do this because God has first loved us in this way. So let's reflect together, let's sing together about this inside-out transformation that he's done for us and how we can love others. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. 
For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.